Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. Today we're going to talk about race and representation with Margot Jefferson, the award-winning author of the memoir, Negroland. This is WSJ Speakeasy, your source for entertainment, pop culture, celebrity, and the arts. This is Christopher John Farley, a senior editor at the Wall Street Journal, talking to Margot Jefferson. She's the author of the new book, Negroland, which recently won the prize for best autobiography from the National Book Critics Circle. Margot, thanks for talking to the Wall Street Journal. I'm glad to be here, Chris. Okay, who, what and where is Negroland? Can you explain that concept to us? <laughs> I can, uh, and I'm glad you called it a concept um, rather than, you know, um, a kind of call, call to um, reuse Negro. Um, Negroland is my name for uh, both of a place, a, a world, let us say, and um, a period of time. The world is that of the variously uh, named black elite, black bourgeoisie, Du Bois called it the talented tenth. The time period is the first half, roughly, of the 20th century when Negro was um, the, the noble, the honorable, the respectable word for, you know, everybody engaged in the process of, you know, uplift, improvement, civil rights, etc. So I'm using the word to um, convey um, a, a historical period uh, as well as a particular world within the world of the Negroes, now what we would call black people. Now, of course, in the book, you actually write that uh, the people of Negroland are, quote, sheltered by a certain amount of privilege and plenty. What I find interesting about that concept when you sort of contrast the black upper class to the, um, the to upper class whites is that it seems that with, with, with us, with African Americans, we're, we're only sort of one job loss or one medical disaster away from no longer being in the world of privilege because, of course, Black family wealth is so much less than um, white family wealth. Um, um, absolutely, um, especially in those decades when you know black family prosperity or wealth was um, largely based on a segregated um, system. Uh, no, it's completely true, and we this was acknowledged. You know, we we were taught, in fact, that it was fragile and perilous, and that any um, mistake in our behavior, as well as, you know, any piece of um, social misfortune, any mistake in our behavior could result in, you know, these egregious consequences, you know, a kind of plunge, um, you know, into the, the so-called lower, lower depths. Uh, I know all the women in my world were expected to get, at the very least, uh, college degrees, possibly even master's degrees, not only because this was a mark of you know, black people caring about education and progressing and developing their intellect, but because, as it was put to us, you know, um, should anything, should you not marry or should anything go wrong with your marriage or should your husband, you know, 
possibly lose, you know, what appeared to be a stable job, you will need a great career to fall back on. Now, of course, your book is described as a memoir, but it's also a history of your sort of not only navigation through this world of upper-class um, African-Americans and privilege, but also sort of a larger cultural history of the whole concept um, from its beginnings all the way to today. Uh, did it start out as a memoir and then become a larger thing, or did it start off as a larger thing and then you found yourself located within it? You know, it started out with my wanting, honestly, to find a way to do both. Uh, in my head, I always thought of it as this bifurcated thing, a cultural memoir. You know, the mem- memoir part clearly meaning, you know, I was um, going to be a character, a, a persona, um, who had to reveal herself, analyze herself, dramatize herself. Um, and yet, you know, I, I wanted always to have that, that landscape um, of this larger culture, which was, you know, black, but also our moving in and out um, of white culture. I wanted that present at all times. I wanted the, the tensions always to keep showing, um, dramatizing, analyzing those, the tensions between an individual self um, and a very powerful um, social world. Now, of course, W. Or a couple of social worlds, really. As you write in the book, W.E.B. Du Bois, he helps create the whole concept of the black upper class and the specifically the idea of this talented 10% that help, will help lead the rest of the race. And, but you also talk about the fact that he kind of turned against the concept in 1948 when he wrote that, when, when he said that a will, he called um, sort of the upper class black people out for, for not really showing a willingness to sacrifice and plan for economic revolution in industry and for a just distribution of wealth. Yes. Can you talk to me a bit about that? Yeah, it's it really it's very interesting, and it's it's the the arc of his um, career and his um, his ethics and morality. Uh, the talented tenth um, concept um, came early in his career, very late nineteenth, early twentieth century. Um, he was a young sociologist, and you know he proclaimed you know that no race has ever moved ahead. Um, you know he'd been studying. Um, European history, he'd studied in Europe, you know, no group moves ahead except through the, the power of the achievement um, being pushed by, um, you know, its leaders. It's, it's, in a sense, top 10%. You know, the 10% is, I guess, fairly arbitrary, but, um, you know, the, the so-called aristocrats. Um, in America, it would have been, you know, um, the, you know, the Adams family, for example. Uh, but as he matured and um, moved through the world as a political activist and a writer. And in his later years, he became um, a Marxist. And by the 40s, uh, when he spoke, in fact, um, very critically, and with just the words you've quoted, to um, a perfect example you know, of, of the black elites, you know, kind of self-congratulatory um, club life, um, a, a men, men's club called the Boule, you know, he basically said, you know, the fact is no upper class or haute bourgeoisie, um, you know, doesn't essentially put its own needs first, and I should have known 
that this um, elite was essentially going to spend its time and money um, rewarding and congratulating and enjoying itself and not, um, you know, working to change the economic and the political system. Now, why do you think that upper class black people and specifically kind of like the whole whole idea of a, a bougie black person is sort of seen as less real than people who are perhaps from less advantaged um, economic situations from the black community. I mean, you can listen to any hip-hop album and basically get that idea across that uh, when, a, when, a, when someone has a lot of money or comes from money and they're in the black community, they're not seen as real as coming from harder circumstances. I mean, you, you sort of touch on that in your book, but I'm wondering what your take on that is. Um, you mean in terms of how larger white society sees it or how black society sees it or both? Uh, uh, whatever you think is appropriate here. I mean, do you think, <laughs> do you think there's a difference in opinion from the white community as from the black community about well, within upper the class black blacks? community, you know, there's a, there, there, there's a lot of contention. There's what you might call um, not only class struggle and conflict, and, but also um, culture struggle. Um, you know, the, the, the image of black culture and um, a great deal of the power of it, um, you know, comes from what we call mass culture, pop culture, what once upon a time we would have called folk culture. Um, You know, that has never been bound by um, a class hierarchy in terms of talent and also in terms of what um, larger white society um, honors and responds to in, in many, many ways, at least as long as you're talking about popular culture. So, you know, I think... Um, often, um, also, let me not finish that sentence. Let me point out that um, black people have always been both denigrated. It's, a, it's an unhappy paradox. Um, denigrated and um, complimented for being, as white society sees it, very, very different. Um, and there can be... Um, this notion that unless we are very, very different, essentially exotic in our ways, our manners, our music, you know, more passionate, more real, you, know, you name it, then we're really not very interesting. We're really just, you know, still Negroes with all the disadvantages that Negroes or black people have, or that we're facsimile, meaning second-rate white people. I thought it also striking when you talk about the ways in which being a member of the Talented Tenth can be stifling culturally and personally in certain ways. For instance, you write that in the late 70s, you began to you know, actively cultivate a desire to kill yourself. And then you go in to sort of talk about the fact that, um, that it may be true that, uh, this, that um, mental health is something that in the black community, we don't we want, don't want to deal with as much as in the white community. And you, and you talk about uh, that perhaps black women are denied the privilege of freely yielding to depression or flaunting neuroses as a mark of social and psychic complexity. Can you talk a bit about that and what you meant by that? Well, whoa, um, <laughs> big, big jumps and leaps. Um, yeah, um, first of all, I think... Um, you know, definitely black history um, has of necessity been marked at all levels, you know, by this, this imperative, um, you know, we will not be crushed politically, socially, or emotionally. We will not, um, 
you know, show that um, we are weak, vulnerable, that, you know, we failure and, and signs of um, real, you know, emotional, um, mental distress are in some way a yielding to um, a collapse, a defeat in the face of um, oppression. And I do think that, you know, virtually all classes of black children traditionally for centuries now, you know, are taught you must constantly be strong. You know, that's how we defeat racism. That's how we make progress. Um, You know, uh, this is, (laughs) this is, this place is a great burden on every generation of black people. And I think, you know, we we all see it inside our own in our own communities, our own families. Um, it's not. And additionally, um, the discipline of everything from let's say traditional psychoanalysis to um, psychiatric social work has largely been um, a bourgeois white um, um, based system. So you know the mental health system um, and mental health and, you know, psychological analysis is really beginning, only beginning um, to really take into account um, all these racial and ethnic and and class um, differences and their effect on um, psychological health. Certainly, um, as as a black woman, you know, our history, what our noble history was supposed to be was, first of all, we had been denied most of us as a group not you know i i my little group got plenty of privileges but historically the legacy was you know no we we were denied a lot of the protections um of that white women were given and at the same time we experienced the same discriminations um that they did without any of the um compensatory um rewards Okay, we're going to be right back with more from Margot Jefferson, the author of Negroland. I'm Veronica Dagger. Do you want to know how the rich invest, spend, and protect their money? Then listen to the Watching Your Wealth podcast. For more information, check us out at wsj.com slash podcasts and find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and now Spotify. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, back to the show. Hey, this is Christopher John Farley, senior editor at the Wall Street Journal. We're talking to Margot Jefferson. She's the author of the memoir, Negroland. It just picked up a big award from the National Book Critics Circle for Best Autobiography. But, you know, before this, you were picking up other awards. You know, you're a Pulitzer Prize winner for criticism. You were a critic for the New York Times. And one thing I want to talk to you a bit about is theater. And I want to get your take on whether you think things in theater have changed in recent years? Because just recently, and I checked out this terrific play, Eclipsed, that Denai Guerrera did that deals with African life. Um, she had another play, Off Broadway, recently called Familia, which dealt with African life in America. Yes. And of yes. course, Hamilton is taking Broadway by storm. And, and the country. I mean, Hamilton seems to have you know, helped revive the notion that you've got na- national touring companies that can be huge successes. And you've also got Shuffle Along, which is in previews, but, you know, it it will be opening. And for a while, you've had, um, you know, a a lot of interesting, you know, off and off, off Broadway plays. Um, I was at the Penn Awards the other night, and the... um, the, uh, There were three theater awards, and the one for, uh, you know, 
new young emerging playwright went to the um, young playwright, very talented Brendan Jennings, Jacobs Jennings, Jacobs Jennings. Um, the the award for um, mid career um, playwright went to Young Jane Lee, and the award for sort of you know cumulative achievement went to Lynn Nottage. So you know this is three. <laughs> Here are three uh, minority, very gifted, very accomplished playwrights. The youngest um, working largely off off and off Broadway. Um, the mid career one, Young Jean Lee also working in those spaces, and Lynn Nottage um, having worked off-Broadway and on-Broadway. You know, that's, that's something. And you've also, you also talk a, a bit about ballet in your book, and I kept thinking about Misty Copeland and her big breakthrough to become the first African-American woman to be a principal dancer for a major company. Well, you know, it's interesting that you bring her up because the history of Black women in ballet in so many ways embodies what we were talking about before, about, um, you know, the, the mythological and decorative and aesthetic rewards that um, white women um, were given um, historically that were really very consciously denied black women. Um, you know, ballet, which is a form I love. Um, there were black women ballet dancers preceding Misty Copeland by some decades, but they were few and far between, and they had very few opportunities to, to advance. They would simply have not been able to become the prima ballerina um, of, um, of a company. And they were told, certainly um, when I was coming along, my sister and I were told, and my sister became the director of the Alvin Ailey School. That, you know, she had a very stringent ballet background, we were routinely told by the culture, um, not, you know, her teacher was a very good woman, her white teacher. She did not say that, but it was understood that, you know, black women were supposed to have flat feet, big behinds, and a kind of, you know, hard manner that, um, you know, put them beyond, put these, you know, sylph-like roles beyond them. There was also always the problem, quote-unquote, of, you know, this these degrees of brown skin, you know, in a, in a core, in a ballet core, well, that would throw off the sense of, of unity. And it, you, you, very akin to um, actually some of the debates that are still going on in theater, but that did for decades. My God, could you actually have, you know, an integrated cast playing Shakespeare? That would shatter everybody's sense of theatrical illusion. But it's also interesting because throughout your book, there's kind of an ongoing sort of grappling with the notion of black beauty and, and black images. And you talk about, you know, waiting to see Dorothy Dandridge come on talk shows and what a big moment it was for the family to sort of see people like that come on. And I remember as I was reading that, I kept taking notes on people who are around today. And so, you know, people like, you know, Kerry Washington and Viola Davis and Taraji P. Henton and how many different images there are of black women on TV today and how it contrasted with some of the, 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 the time periods you sort of focus in on in the book. I mean... It's re- but- yes, that's, that's absolutely right. And, you know, there's, there's also, um, you know, there are the various sitcoms. There's Blackish, Tracy Ellen Ross. You know, there, there's really relatively <laughs> a great number 
And, and yet there's still a debates. I mean, had you been following the whole sort of debate recently about the, the movie about Nina Simone? Oh, my that, God, that, the, yes. that Zoe Saldana, who was yes. light-skinned, is playing Nina. Yes. She appears in the trailer to be having to, to be wearing sort of darker brown makeup to make her appear to look more like the darker-skinned Nina Simone. And that and prompted there seems a, to have been a reconstructed nose and, and such, yeah. yeah. How, how did you feel about that when you saw that? Uh, you know, I had been thinking about it long before seeing that that image, um, and I just thought, you know, it didn't it didn't have to happen. <laughs> there are a number. You know, you know, we didn't have to go through this. There are so many. I and mean, then someone published actually a kind of list of six or seven um, black actresses who could very well have played Nina Simone without this you know, arduous, excruciating, you know, transition into, um, you know, brown face. Uh, and, and, and it was all uh, pointless and, and, and galling. And, uh, yeah, that's what I thought of it. Now, and it's it... not that people shouldn't be, you know, actors shouldn't be allowed to cross all kinds of boundaries and barriers, but there are still relatively so few roles for, you know, very brown-skinned women, and there were so many gifted actresses who could have done this. Why? Now, to a, a lot of people, you know, the world of Negroland is a place they've never been because maybe they're not black, maybe they're not part of that socioeconomic group. But it always seemed to me that having Obama as president sort of gave people a peek inside of what that world is like, this world of, 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 of black Americans who have gone to top schools and who have these certain privileges. When yes, he leaves no, office, right. but when he leaves office, will people's sort of ability to sort of travel to Negro land fade away? Will white America not be able to imagine the people that live there anymore? Or what kind of effect will that have when you he finally know, leaves I office? I wonder, because, of course, the way you've put it brings to mind, my mind and probably yours too, the fact that the preceding mass culture um, example, exemplar, really, of um, a Negro land family was the Bill Cosby show, right? Uh, we can't talk about him anymore, right? Well, <laughs> well um, we don't really want to. It's been, a, it's been quite a fall and a plunge. But, you know, that was the first appearance through mass culture, um, you know, in a very highly endorsed and popular um, appearance of... Um, a Negro land black family. Um, Obama and his family, you know, his real family, took it in every way into um, another more august and impressive realm. At the end of your book, you end with the simple words, go on. And that evoked, that evoked in me, it sort of made me, made me think of the last lines in um, a work by Beckett. You know, I you must know, go on. You know what's funny? You're completely right. Um, and I ha- it was not conscious. <laughs> you know, I God knows how many productions over the years I must have seen of Waiting for Godot. Um, I admire Beckett, but, you know, I don't sit down and read him every day. It just, it came up, and then I saw it. I mean, it's a great play. Um, and I thought, oh, well. Okay, you know it's gonna it's gonna remind people of Beckett. It's what you wanted to say, and if it does, that's okay. Mm-hmm. 
Well, great. Well, we've been talking to Margot Jefferson about her book, Negro Land, out now. It's a memoir. It just won a big prize from the National Books Critics Circle. Margot, thanks for talking to the Wall Street Journal. Oh, I enjoyed it, Chris. Thank you. Great. For more podcasts, become a subscriber on iTunes, Stitcher, and now Spotify. And check us out at wsj.com slash podcasts.